Welcome to Every Quarter, the voice of Andover, Phillips Academy's official podcast where we share the compelling stories and ideas of our faculty, alumni, students, and distinguished campus guests. Our monthly show features candid conversations on current events, academia, and Andover's connection to important matters happening around the world. If you like what we do, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, and while you're there, leave us a review, comment, and rating. Your feedback helps promote every quarter and helps us tell the type of stories you want to hear. Hafsat Abiola, class of 1992, is a fighter, a seeker of justice, a champion for human rights. Her life is a story of discovery, tragedy, resiliency, and action. Inspired by the unlawful imprisonment of her father, and the assassination of her mother, Abiola has dedicated her life to promoting democracy in Nigeria and empowering women around the world. In 1996, she founded the NGO Kudarat Initiative for Democracy, or KIND, which seeks to involve women and youth in Africa's social, economic, and political development. Most recently, Abiola was named Executive President of Women in Africa Initiative. In this episode of Every Quarter, Emily and Diogo, class of 2018, sits down with Abiola to discuss how Andover has inspired her, current challenges facing Africa's economic development, and the spread of Nigerian culture across the world. Hello, everyone. My name is Emily Ndiogo. I'm a four-year senior from Texas, and I have the pleasure of being the current AFLIDAM president. And today, I have the great honor of doing a quick interview with Ms. Hafsat Alviola, class of 1992. So how did you find out about Andover? How did you get to where you are today? What kind of brings you back to campus? Um, my family is from Lagos in um, the commercial capital of Nigeria in West Africa. And my mom was the second wife of four wives of my father, who was um, this major businessman. So in our house, we had a lot of children. And my mom wanted her children to have the opportunity to be independent. Because once you're children of a very um, successful businessman in Nigeria, you know, sometimes the, the shadow that um, those kinds of people cast can be quite big. And then also, um, she didn't want us to get lost among the children. And also, she didn't want us to feel so entitled as if, oh, you don't have to work, your father's already successful, that kind of mentality that some Nigerian kids get. Mm. So she wanted us to come to America, and she didn't know anything about America. But we were lucky. We had an uncle who had lived in America, and he brought all this... Um, books about the different schools that we could go to and one summer we just drove around to different campuses and did interviews and my brother ended up going to Kent, um, my sister to Choate, another sister to Northfield Mount Hermon and I came to Andover. And again, because she wanted us to make sure we have our own identity, she wanted us to go to different schools. <laughs> so it worked out very nicely for us. I ended up here. I feel like I got the best um, deal. I'm sure I don't know what the I don't know how the others feel about their schools. We've never really discussed it, but Andover was just an incredible experience for me. Andover is home, a special place. What does Afladam mean to you? Afladam is um, home within a home. Afladham was um, the place where I went to hang out with other people 
who looked like me and got to meet them um, and got to realize also that we may look alike but we're quite different and just could celebrate each other. It was like family. Um, and now kind of thinking about today, what are some of the things that you're doing now? <laughs> so I, I wear several hats now. In the, at the most local level, I have an NGO in Nigeria that helps women and girls. And um, we train thousands, maybe about almost 10,000 now, women and girls in leadership because we want women and girls to to come out of the kitchen, come out of the house and not be so discriminated against in Nigeria. Um, and we want them to be in leadership in the political sector. So we train them and we also work against domestic violence um, and um, things of this nature. Also, I don't know if you know VVF. Mm-mm, I'm not familiar with It's like a lot of our young girls at the age of 12, they're married in northern Nigeria especially, but actually in all parts of Nigeria, they get married quite early. And within a year, they're having their children. And this is before their bodies are ready to bear children. So they, um, when they go through the delivery process, some of them, their muscles tear. And so after the delivery, they can't, they can't hold their pee. Mm. And um, so we um, have a campaign against early marriage of children. And um, we raise funds through some plays to do medical interventions for girls that have already suffered from VVF. Um, it's called vesico-virginal fistula, VVF. And it's, um, in, it, it's quite sad because then the parents who are often illiterate don't know why their daughters have this condition. The husband doesn't also know. So the husband decides that he actually doesn't want that woman, this girl child that is his bride after all, and he kicks her out of the house. The parents are also embarrassed by her, so they also kick her out. So she she ends up being homeless in um, in in a very poor community that has very little sympathy. So we've been taking these girls and um, helping them get medical care. But we but more than the girls getting medical care, we need to stop the practice of marrying children to men. I mean, they're too young; they're children, and they should we should wait. But it's very difficult because it goes against culture and tradition and also the interpretation of religion. So it's quite an uphill task working on that issue. So my NGO works on things like that. It's called KIND. It's named for my mom because um, she was a political activist and she was killed. So I created the organization to honor her and to inspire women to stand up for themselves and help build the country in a different way. And so my other hat is that I'm a member of cabinet um, of the state, one of the states in Nigeria, the industrial hub mm-hmm. called Ogun State, and I'm the advisor to the governor on trade and investment. I used to be the advisor on development, and um, in that role, I was managing um, the money we were using to build health health centers, schools, borehole systems, you know, and it was really a privilege. In this new role, I, I like it because um, in the other role, we would wait for the government to, we would wait to get money from government to use to help poor people. In this new role, we can actually help build the economic um, resilience of communities by directing investment into communities and we can help push jobs 
um, decent jobs into communities. So I feel that it's a more sustainable role because if the communities are more resilient and if they're more prosperous, they can buy their own borehole systems, they can build their own hospitals, or they can finance their own hospitals and, and strengthen their own schools. And so the, um, the, the onus isn't on the government to always raise the funds because the challenge is much more than the government can solve on its own. So it allows me to really channel private sector energy in um, regenerating communities. Then on a global level, I'm part of a group called the World Future Council, which is based out in Germany. And it's looking at global issues and how we solve them. Um, issues around the fact that we, we use so trillions of dollars um, arming governments all around the world. We cannot find the money to finance the sustainable development goals. It doesn't make any sense. You know, so we tackle those kinds of issues. We work with many of the UN agencies to address um, a lot of our global challenges. And we look at the intersection between poverty, violence, you know, and all this other climate change. And we look for levers, what we can do, policies we can adopt, that countries can adopt to address them. So I'm lucky because I feel like I work on many different levels because sometimes when you work on the global issues, it's not really fulfilling because it seems so far away mm. and you don't see the impact that you're making. But the more local you can also work, the, the better because you see the difference in the lives of people and it motivates you to do more. Um, so those are the three main ones. And um, fingers crossed, knock on wood, I'm, so I'm supposed to start a new job in a few months to head an organization that is working with women across Africa oh, wow. to help the women um, build um, economic projects, to build up their economies, to help them get involved in government. And I like that it's continent-wide, but it's actually based in France, but it's mm. um, it works across Africa. Because right now I've just been working primarily in Nigeria, and the problems, you know, African problems are so connected. Truly. So I, I'm just looking forward to that next step. Well, you are certainly doing incredible work in all of your many hats. And I'm just curious in terms of what is motivating you, what is inspiring you to do the work that you do? I'm inspired. I've always been inspired. I'm inspired by many things, but I've always been inspired by the U.S., and for that, I want to thank um, Jay Rogers, who is no longer with us, but he was a history teacher at Andover. Mm -hmm. And um, he just got me in, he just had me fall in love with history. Maybe the way he taught it, or maybe just um, the class and the books we were reading. But I remember reading um, American history and seeing the evolution of the U.S. So when I think about the U.S., I think not just about this, what we see today, which is a very successful country, the number one, um, one of the, I think maybe easily the richest country in the world. And um, I just think also of all the steps that we took for the US to get here, um, you think of, as an African, um, as a black person, I think of people like Abraham Lincoln, what he did, um, the importance of the steps he took. Um, JFK, the speeches he delivered, I mean, when the country was so divided, were so powerful. Um, even And beyond those 
presidents, the people, the labor unions and how they would organize when there were no rights for workers and all these kinds of steps that we're taking to get here. I'm inspired by all of that. Um, Martin Luther King. I remember I used to um, do um, I used to do a comparison between Malcolm X and Martin Luther mm -hmm. King. I, I just, it just taught me that people make a difference. And so I think when I look at the world that we live in, I think that we also can make a difference. We've, I've seen the evidence from the history books that I read. And so in life, I feel that if we, in my life at least, I feel that I'm not really um, just accountable to the present, but I'm accountable to the future. You know, whatever we do today, people that come after us, it's going to mean something to them. It could mean something bad, it could mean something good, depending on what we do. But just ima I just imagine many descendants, um, maybe a hundred years from now, and they look back and they say, okay, these people were able to end racism, or they were able to end police brutality, or they were able to end the culture of uh, misogyny. What a gift to the future that we would have given. And I want to have that conversation across time, a conversation that those that come after us will still, that will still resonate with those that come after us, and they will still be able to um, appreciate it. The way I appreciate the work of the civil rights movement, or even Abraham Lincoln. So I think that one of the big things that we're seeing is um, that people take responsibility and come together. You know, people have always taken responsibility, but they usually don't come together. So you have individuals um, speaking, but you know, a lone voice can easily be blown um, blown um, blown out by the wind. You wouldn't hear it. And um, when you come together, there's so much more power in coming together. So in Nigeria now, where many groups are coming together to, we, stay, we call it Revive Nigeria, because we feel like it's a patient that is, <laughs> is quite ill and is in drastic need of intervention. So we're coming together to figure out how we revive Nigeria in terms of education, how we revive Nigeria in terms of, um, you know, building a governance model that works, a democratic governance model that really allows us to listen to the people and serve their interest. And all those kinds of, all the different challenges that we have. So we're involved in that now. And, um, and I, so I think that there is going to be a shift um, in the way in which um, we're seeing the situation there. But we're always, of course, we're always aware that the problems we have isn't just with us. It's also in, about our connection to the world. And so we're always concerned to work on that as well. Um, but we have a diaspora. We have a very vibrant diaspora that is global in the US. We have about 3,000 medical doctors that are Nigerians. You know, we have such huge and qualified diaspora that they can also help us in engaging the, the US government, for example, and asking for changes in policy. So we're actually now building that movement now, that, and I'm involved in that in Nigeria, because I think we're all tired of complaining, and we really want, and even the poor people can't really afford complaints. They want results, they want change. So we really uh, 
focusing more now on solutions. But the best part of Nigeria is not, I wouldn't even say is that, because that's just an effort to solve a problem. The best part of Nigeria is the culture, the music, the movie industry, which actually produces more films than Hollywood. We're only second to Bollywood, to the um, in, um, movie industry of India, in terms of output. And it's overtaken the whole continent of Africa, which is good for us in in the sense that other parts of Africa, many people don't even wear the African clothes anymore. Because many of, like Southern and Eastern Africa, there were more settler colonies where they had actual European people coming. So people have now adopted um, European dress, which there's nothing wrong with European dress. But it's just that it's also nice to appreciate what your own culture has. So as Nigeria, which is in West Africa, which has, because we're in West Africa, we have more of an appreciation of West African clothing, African clothing. As we've taken over the whole continent in our movies, people are now returning to African clothing in on the continent. And, and I think that's a good thing because your culture is what you have. You know, one of the things we don't have in Africa is money because, as I've said before, there's a conscious um, mechanism. The mechanism in place is about impoverishing us. So... It's, we're not, unless we change that, it's not going to be... We'll only ever have a minority that has money. But we must change it because that's not fair or just. But what we've, what we've always had is our culture. We've had great food, great music, great um, storytelling culture and all of this. And, and, you know, it's always good to go into the world with what you have. Instead of going into the world because you are seeking something, as if you don't have anything... We have things and we can celebrate what we have. And we're doing that now with um, with our movie industry. In fact, if the movie industry is even doing so well in Latin America. People in Latin America are watching our movies. They're getting it subtitled. We're not subtitling it. They have people there who take our movies and they put it into subtitles and they watch because they feel like our stories also is similar to their reality in some places. So it's just really very heartwarming to see the way in which our culture has been received. And I think that our music industry is going to blow blow out just the way that the Jamaican reggae industry did. Because, you know, it's now playing every time in, um, even in the U.S. Night, um, clubs in, uh, in Europe. And I'm very big on music. So when I listen to music from other places and I listen to our own, I can see our own... Even in Nigerian clubs now, we don't even bother playing any other music but our own. Mm-hmm. But then at the end, after a night of people hanging out, when the club is winding down, they start playing oldies. Then they play the Western oldies <laughs> because we like Western oldies and it's a way to signal that we're winding down. But it's also a sign that we really like what we have. So I think all of these things is a sign that, you know, in spite of the challenges Africa has, what Africa has is so strong also. It can help us meet those challenges. It's the culture that we have. At this point, it's almost like we think of responsibility as individual responsibility, what you can do. But we have to have system responsibility. We have to create um, systems and collectives that can be accountable for the way we use the world um, and the way we relate with each other. And for me, maybe because of my background, the most important thing is how Africa is treated in the world. I have huge problems and concerns around this. You know, everybody has a cell phone, 
and yet you know and the cell phone uses um this material called coltan which you can only get in congo and in china and china's supply of coltan isn't available in the world because they're hoarding their supply so the world supply is coming from congo in the heart of africa which you would think given the amount of cell phones that are being available on the planet that congo would be at least the richest country in africa it's the poorest. It's among the um, poorest five countries that we have. The coltan is being um, mined using child labor. You know, the way in which Africa is in the global economic system is highly problematic. It's always been problematic, and it hasn't changed. And I think that Africans have a responsibility now to engage in a global conversation about how we change that. Because I don't mind global prosperity, but I reject the idea that glo- global prosperity should be on the backs of Africa. It's, that story is uh, so old, and I'm so tired of it. What do you think are some of the most common myths surrounding this problematic narrative of African nations kind of fueling the world but never ever re- receiving the benefits? One of the um, myths is the idea that the world is helping Africa and that they're giving us aid. You know, they talk about aid... Um, the U.S. through the United States Agency for International Development sends um, billions into African countries. Um, U.K. has Department for International Development, U.K. DFID. They do the same. The, across Europe, there's an effort to give 0.7% of their GDP to aid, and some of that, maybe a lot of it, is coming into Africa. So there's this narrative that the world is helping to civilize Africa. Now, this is a very old story that has been told. You know, even in the um, 18th century, when um, they were beginning to explore the ideas of colonizing Africa, 19th century, certainly, there was the idea of a civilizing mission, that we would go and civilize the barbarians. Now, the truth is very far from this. And there was, you know, George Soros. You would know him. George Soros, the billionaire. I'm not familiar. <laughs> you will become familiar in short some point. <laughs> He's a billionaire based out in New York City, but originally from Hungary. And he has an organization called the Soros Foundation. So they did a study um, where they looked at all the money that flows into Africa. So they looked at aid, they looked at investment, and every kind of flow on into the continent. Then they looked at the money that flows out of Africa in terms of... Um, profit, remittances, any, all kinds of money flowing out. And they found that um, in contrast to this idea that this, the, world, um, the wealthy countries of the world are helping Africa to grow, Africa is actually powering the world to the tune of $50 billion a year. That is, if you take all the money that flows in and all the money that flows out, Africa powers the world to about $50 billion a year. It's actually more because I saw another study that was looking at... Um, between um, profit remittances and other kinds of flows, and it was a lot more than 50 billion. But let's just accept 50 billion from the Soros Foundation. And when the Soros Foundation looked at the 50 billion, they disaggregated it. They said, what makes this $50 billion? And they found that about um, 13% of it was um, the corrupt politicians leaders in Africa. This is important mm. because that's 13%. Because when you have the, the narrative on Africa, it's always the corrupt leaders. So yes, there's a problem with our corrupt leaders. 
but it's 13% of the problem of Africa's loss of revenue. Then they found that 20% roughly is accounted for by um, criminal underworld. That's um, drug traffickers, traffickers in people mm -hmm. and um, drug traffickers, traffickers in people and traffickers in arms mm -hmm. account for another 20%. The bulk of the money Africa is losing every year is accounted for by um, multinational corporations. Now, the multinational corporations are largely Western companies. This is important. So if it's a problem of these Western companies, it's a problem that the Western countries can solve. You know, so it's not that the world powers Africa. Our Africa powers the world. And Africa's powering of the world is impoverishing Africa. This is important. And the, this has to shift. So the last year in August, I was at an event with about like 150 people, and Bill Gates was there. And he, he, you know, Gates Foundation does so much work in Africa, helping with um, with malaria, polio, and mm. all of this. And he also was talking about the corrupt politicians in Africa, and um, the efforts that they're making in spite of them. He also said that under the Trump presidency and with Brexit in the UK, that um, the amount of wealth, um, the amount of aid coming for Africa is actually imperiled because President Trump may not be so keen to continue to provide aid. And with Brexit, the UK's commitment is also in question. So I, I was able to ask a final question. So I said to him that, you know, I gave him the Soros statistics, which he was well aware of that report because, the, you know, Soros Foundation is a very credible organization. Then I, I said to him that, to me, it would be better for him to focus on... It would be better for him to focus on helping us to keep our money that has been taken by these multinationals, much of it stolen because... They use all kinds of means to evade taxes through what they call uh, misinvoicing or um, so that they can act, they can say they're earning a loss when they're earning a profit so they can remit money. They have all kinds of mechanisms by which they remove the money that they're making in Africa. That it would be better for Africa if we focused on that instead of focusing on aid, which is at the, at the generosity of governments. So today the uh, British government is generous and tomorrow is not, but Africa's problems are still there, whether or not the government is generous. So it's not a good way to solve the problem. Since this wealth that has been stolen is Africa's wealth, better for you to focus on helping us keep that. And it's more sustainable because year in and year out, Africa keeps some of its wealth and solves our problems. So I, I suggested that to him and I... Um, he said that he thinks that there's something um, globally now they're trying to do, which is um, the they're trying to put all financial transactions online um, using things like maybe Bitcoin, and so it becomes transparent mm -hmm. using technology. So then, if they're able to do that, then it would not be so easy for companies to be <laughs> diverting money. Okay. So he was saying that he thinks that process 
will help us in the long run to solve this problem of Africa's loss of wealth. But I think that technology on its own can never solve a problem of this nature. Because this is a problem also of will. You know, so it's not a problem that technology alone can solve, but it's good to know that, that we will have the technical tools um, that if there was other things available, we would then be able to protect Africa's wealth for the people of Africa. So um, I think one of the myths is that, that, that myth. Another one is that it's um, politicians in Africa that account for the problem, which I think that report was very clear that it's, it's bigger than that, much bigger than that. And I think that um, another um, myth that we have, that Africans have, and I think um, is actually, I think, the nature of the challenge that Africa faces as a, as, a, as a whole. I think that the problem Africa faces is, um, is kind of like the slavery of our time. So when I think about slavery, and one what we've studied in history about slavery, you come somewhere and you take people against their will and you take them to another place and you make them work and you don't pay them. And that's what slavery was. I actually now think that um, the whole continent of Africa, to me, is almost in a slave economy. It's almost as if you end slavery by, you, you end the practice of taking physical people and you enslave a whole place. Because when I look at that kind of report and it says what that report says, and Congo is what the poorest place when it should be one of the wealthiest places in the world, then I just think, um, how is this not a slave situation for the whole continent of Africa? In what way do they look free? I mean, and when you think also of the fact that even their independent states, um, you had governments, and whenever the governments make steps that um, powerful countries feel are not in their favor, they just take the government out. They'll just, like um, in Burkina Faso, the president was Thomas Sankara, and he, um, he was doing all kinds of things, immunization for all children, education for all people, equality for women, all kinds of progressive steps. But France felt that he was not mm, kowtowing to France, mm. so they worked with Côte d'Ivoire, a neighboring country, to overthrow and kill Thomas Sankara, and then replaced Thomas Sankara with a guy called Blaise Campari, who then ruled for 30 years and didn't do anything progressive. Mm. And even if you look at Congo, six months after the independence of Congo, um, the president of Congo at the time, Patrice Lumumba, they felt he was too radical, so he was killed and replaced by a clown called Mobutu Seseko, who then went on to rule that place for over 30 years and completely impoverished that place, did nothing for that place. Now, interesting issue was that when um, JFK met um, Mobutu Sese Seko, mm -hmm. and Mobutu's request to JFK was the opportunity to parachute down from an aircraft. So you coming from a country that was colonized by Belgium was the worst story of colonization on the continent of Africa. At the point of independence in 1960, they had about 20-something graduates of a university in a country of like maybe 40 million people. Mm. So just to talk to you about the exploitation of the place, the exploitation had been so bad. There was a book written called King Leopold's Ghost, 
by a British journalist documenting where King Leopold of Belgium, were, he had um, his soldiers cutting off hands of laborers when they didn't meet their quota for rubber, to provide rubber. So it was just a very horrible situation. So when they first had their president, of course, a president that saw his, how his people were exploited is going to be radical, he's going to be angry. You can pacify him, you can find things to give him that will make him feel like, oh, where the story of exploitation is at an end. You didn't do that. You, you take him out. And actually, there's even reports, you know, I don't want to say too much, but people will start thinking, I'm talking about conspiracy theories, and that's not it. There are documents from the State Department looking at how the um, Belgium and the U.S. were involved in taking out this guy. They took him out, and they brought in a clown that is in the midst of all of that poverty, and his one request to the president of the um, richest country in the world at the time was the opportunity to parachute down from an aircraft. Then, you know, I, you know, it just makes me sad for the continent that um, our situation is as it is. And also, you know, because my parents were very much involved in the de democratic struggle for Nigeria. And they were not in any way what you would call radical people. My father was a businessman. I mean, he was CEO for ITT. He was in no way radical in the way that the Western countries sometimes fear radicalism, which they mean communism, because he was a capitalist. But even in, in our own struggle, we saw that there was a preference to work with soldiers and the military than to work with people who can represent their people. The soldiers and the military just want, in, at the time, the military um, head of state in Nigeria just wanted to buy arms. Today, Nigeria overtook, um, a month ago, Nigeria overtook India as the country with the highest number of poor people in the world. We have the highest number of poor people in the world, and the democratic struggle that my parents led and died for in Nigeria we gained in 1999. So we're almost 20 years into the democracy, and the way in which we've been managing this democratic system has completely failed the people of Nigeria. Because in the end, we ended up with leaders who didn't have that kind of vision to serve. And the ones that had the vision to serve don't get the support. That story has to change, and we have to think of how we change it. I mean, I've been working very closely with many people across the US, Canada, I mean, across the world for over 20 years when we've been fighting for the democracy. So I know that there are um, people who want you know, Africa to rise and people who want um, the world to be just and fair. But the idea that the power system also wants that, I think that um, there are too many vested interests in the way things are. And we have to be aware that the battle to change it, it, it has to be similar to the battle to end um, discrimination. It has to be similar to the movement that produced the civil rights movement, the movement that produced you know, equal rights movement for women. We have to have a similar movement like that for you know, global equity in the world. Otherwise, I don't know that the things can change. 
Every quarter is produced by the Office of Communication at Phillips Academy in Andover and made possible by a grant from the Abbott Academy Fund, continuing Abbott's tradition of boldness, innovation, and caring. Like what you've heard? Spread the word. Share EQ with friends and connect with us using the hashtag EveryQuarterPodcast. You can also find us at podcast.andover.edu. Thanks for listening. I'm Jesse Wallner.